1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. It is the inspired word of the living God. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his precious word for his name's sake. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come to thee in Jesus' name, rejoicing in the opening of the Scriptures and coming to these words that are full of so much importance. We pray that tonight thy Spirit will descend upon us and quicken us and enable us to receive the Word of God as it is in truth, not the word of men, but as the word of God. O Lord, we pray that Christ will be exalted in this house tonight, so that our attention will be drawn unto him. O hear us, we pray, and help us to learn the lessons of thy word tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let every one seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2 and 3. You may think, that those sentiments are part of a student handbook from any of the Christian colleges and universities, living and dead, of which you may have heard. But those statements are from the founding documents of one of the oldest institutions of higher learning in America, Harvard College. Six years after the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritan leaders of that endeavor established Harvard College for the primary purpose of training young men in the colony to be ministers of the gospel. 
they could scarcely send them back across the ocean to England to be trained there. That was an impractical approach. How did Harvard College get its name? A year or two after its founding, a man died whose name was John Harvard, and he bequeathed his entire library to the use of the college, and so the trustees of the college decided to name it after him. The expectations for the behavior of the students of the college reflected the application of the scriptures to their lives. And I quote again from those founding documents that they, eschewing all profanation of God's name, attributes, word, ordinances, and times of worship, do study with good conscience carefully to retain God and the love of his truth in their minds. Else let them know that notwithstanding their learning, God may give them up to strong delusions and in the end to a reprobate mind. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, Romans 1, 28. That they studiously redeem the time, observe the general hours appointed for all the students, and the special hours for their own classes and then diligently attend the lectures without any disturbance by word or gesture. None shall under any pretense whatsoever frequent the company and society of such men as lead an unfit and dissolute life. So, what happened? If that was how Harvard College began, you may have heard about the state of things at Harvard College now, and you will ask, what happened? Well, simply this. The leaders and students of the college became weary of the spiritual discipline the founders prescribed and wished for an easier and more popular path to the ministry. Sadly, those parents of the students and community leaders who supported the college gradually adopted a similar view. Dr. David Beale, an eminent church historian of our time, wrote an article some years ago now on the decline of Harvard College. And I wanted to share some of that article with you. Many desired after about 70 years. So if the college began in 1636, now we're talking about the beginning of the following century, 1706. Many desired what they styled a more broad 
and Catholic spirit, desiring to make churches more people-friendly instead of focusing on truth and doctrine. Dr. Beale traced four changes that gradually occurred. First was a change in mood. That took place under the presidency of Samuel Willard from 1701 to 1707, which made the school tolerant to the idea of change, making it easier, making it uh, less strict, change in mood. Then came a change in methods under the following president. He encouraged, John Leverett was his name. He was president of the college from 1708 to 1724. Encouraged new methods of doing church. That is, trying to create a more welcoming environment. The third step in the process was a change in morals, which happened under the presidency of Benjamin Wadsworth, who served from 1725 to 1737. The restraint, you remember that we considered the application of the scriptures to the lives of the students and how they were to conduct themselves The restraint on morals was ridiculed. Students insisted, and we're talking now just a hundred years after the college was founded, students insisted on freedom of expression. My, where have we heard that kind of thing before? Freedom of expression. They didn't want the Puritan strictness, the Puritan morals anymore, so that... There were drinking parties on the campus, cursing and swearing, gambling, drinking in the dorms, and even putting live snakes in the chambers of tutors. This was supposed to be a positive development. So that was the change in morals. And then came the change in message. Under the presidency of Edward Holyoke from 1737 to 1769, a lengthy administration. It was the time of the Great Awakening, the time when Jonathan Edwards was preaching elsewhere in Massachusetts. Most people at Harvard rejected those messages, especially when George Whitfield came to the colony. They rejected his preaching. And in 1739, so we are now 103 years after the college began, three of the graduates that year openly denied the Trinity. And Unitarianism spread in the student body. There were two presidents who tried to turn things around. Samuel Langdon, from 1774 to 1780, this was the time of the beginning of the War for Independence. He tried to turn things around at Harvard College, but the students ran him out. Then Joseph Willard, who was president 
from 1781 to 1804 was the last president who tried to stop the apostasy. The year after he died, Harvard's board appointed Henry Ware, a Unitarian, as Hollis Chair of Divinity. The Hollis Chair of Divinity existed by reason of an endowment by a man named Thomas Hollis with the requirement that he should be a man of solid learning in divinity of sound or orthodox principles, one well gifted to teach of a sober and pious life and of a grave conversation. That is what the donor that set up the chair of divinity intended. But that is not what the chair of divinity became. The striking thing about this process was that it happened gradually. There was no dramatic swing from one side to another. It took about a hundred years, actually. It began with a desire to focus more on people than on truth. And as truth receded into the background, morality declined. So the result of a more tolerant spirit of the changing of the focus of the college led to loosening morals and ultimately to the loss of Christian faith. So it came to pass by the early part of the 19th century, the president of the college was a Unitarian. Somebody who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And I venture to say that none of those who founded the college envisioned such a development. But the apostasy from the truth and the feckless compromises with that departure first subverted and then destroyed the vision of the founders of the college. This tale has many persistent echoes in church history, and especially in the compromising climate in which we proclaim the gospel now, in the third decade of the 21st century. We have read tonight from Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And in his inspired pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul warned his young protege Timothy, in this case, about the dangers of surrendering the truth that is the inscripturated word and the incarnate word. As the gospel spread across the world during the first century, the opposition to that message became more intense and more ominous. There was no ebbing of the persecution against those who followed the way of Christ. Many of our brothers and sisters in the faith lost their lives during the first century for believing simply what you and I believe. 
But in addition, there began to arise within the Christian community those who under the guise of being Christian teachers began to subvert the truths that lay at the bottom of Christianity, to use the expression that the founders of Harvard College employed. Paul spoke of heretics like Janice and Jambres who resisted the truth. Yes, they were in the court of Pharaoh. We were reading earlier this evening about the plagues in Egypt. They resisted the truth. The second generation of Christian leaders, including Timothy and Titus and others, faced a battle over orthodox doctrine. The heresies that arose were the result of accommodating the gospel to the various pagan philosophies that swirled around the first century world. And those attacks focused on the authority of Holy Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. And whenever there is apostasy, you come ultimately to that place. To deny those foundational truths was to argue for the message of salvation by human merit. And that message is very much alive in the world around us today. The heretics taught that if you do the best you can, you don't really have to pay attention to what Paul and Peter and those other very strict people say. If you do the best you can, if you're sincere in whatever religion you follow, then God will accept you. Whatever God's name really is. It was the message that Paul urged Timothy to resist with determination. In our text this evening, Paul indicated that the church exists in the world for a specific reason, to stand in defense of the truth of which we read in the last verse of this chapter. And we'll come to that verse in due course. That truth that we read there is what the heretics and the apostates and those who compromise with them seek to subvert. In the language of the experience at Harvard College, they want a more people-focused church, not one focused on the truth. That devilish work has been going on since Christ ascended to heaven. But Paul's reminder to Timothy here and to every other follower of Jesus Christ, and that includes ourselves, is that the church has a purpose to pursue and a gospel to preach. The church must not open itself to the view that its message is negotiable. In the effort to secure accommodation or popularity or relevance or some version of unity. When Jesus Christ prayed for the unity of his people, that they may be one, he prayed, he did not pray 
that the truth concerning him should become optional or flexible. The inspired apostle told his younger colleague that the church exists in the world to contend against every effort to deny the truth of the gospel. Recently, the world has witnessed the spectacle of the death of Pope Benedict XVI. Pope Emeritus, he was called, the first pope in 600 years to retire before he died. Pope Benedict, like all the others who came before him and the one who has come after him, denies the plain statements of Scripture to argue for a religion of merit. And when the Pope denies those statements, then the church, as Paul said here, that is the pillar and ground of the truth, must identify and condemn such departures. When we assemble in the church, we take our stand for the message of the truth. Not the truth as others want to define it, but the truth as the scriptures define it. We speak of that truth as the early leaders of Harvard College did in their time. It was the motto of the college. Truth for Christ and the church. And I want you to think upon that theme with me in the time we have remaining this evening. The church is in the world, and when we speak about the church, let's not think about it as some amorphous entity. The church is made up of the Lord's people, of the redeemed people. The church is in the world to speak the truth, and to speak for the truth. During the period of the pandemic, I heard some people speculate that there was truth that was beyond the scriptures. And they weren't hearing that truth. Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, there is no truth beyond the scriptures. If you want to know the truth, you open the book of God. The reality that the church is called to speak for the truth leads to controversy. It leads to battles. And we have to realize that that experience is not unique to us. But there is in these verses of Scripture that we consider tonight a very encouraging thought. And that is that those who wage their battles for the truth do so under the direction and protection of the living God. Every Christian church is, as Paul put it, the church of the living God. That's an impressive title. Those who are in the church are called to battle then for that which the living God has revealed. This defense of the truth demands the assertion of positions that the ungodly find abhorrent. And after the historic Supreme Court decision last year reversing Roe v. Wade, there were many people who disagreed, even those who professed to be Christians, 
But the ungodly found that decision abhorrent because it is the reflection of what is in the book of God. In many places in our country right now, there is a battle over whether churches should have the liberty to assert the truth that there are only two genders. And whatever the battle is here, I can tell you that in Canada it's even stronger. That marriage is to be only between one man and one woman. The leaders of the world, including those at the head of the United States government, appear to believe that taking positions of that nature harms the people of society. Well, I tell you, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said, and the first century world teemed with such perversion. Abortion is not something that Americans invented. Paul urged Timothy here to be constant in taking his stand as a young minister of the gospel in defense of the truth. As Paul advised Timothy concerning the church, he underlined several inescapable truths that I point out to you this evening. One, God's presence. Paul wrote here in verse 15 that the church is the house of God. He was speaking of the church of the living God. What is the church? Well, if you turn over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, And to verse 6, But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we? We are the house of God. Whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, that is, it's not just a pro forma ritual expression. We are the house of God if we hold fast what God has revealed. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated, those whom Christ has redeemed by his precious blood, are the house of God. They are the dwelling place of the living God. How it ought to strike us, especially when the church gathers together, that there is the dwelling place of the living God. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Know ye not that ye, and here is the advantage of the authorized version, that ye, plural, you Corinthians, he's saying, ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. What the Puritans advocated 
for the lives of the students at Harvard College was nothing more than a reflection of this statement in 1 Corinthians 3. The glory of the church then is that it is the place where God dwells. So it's not a place for amusement. It's not a place for ignoring or defying the truth that God has revealed. In the house of God appears the power and glory of God. It's another impressive thought, isn't it? That when the believers assemble together, whether in a private home or here in the place of worship, when the believers assemble together, there appears the power and glory of God. Not the way we envision it, but simply that here are people whom Christ has redeemed by his blood whom the Spirit has regenerated. Let us turn back to the Old Testament, to the 63rd Psalm. Psalm 63, verse 1, the psalmist on the run in the wilderness of Judah said, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. To see God's power and God's glory. When we have the privilege of looking about us upon those whom the blood of Christ has purchased, we see the evidence of the power and glory of the living God. We can't add to the glory of God, but we declare that glory. The church cannot conduct its mission in the world unless it lives in the light of the reality that the living God is present in the church, that it is the house of God. So let this church conduct its mission with the knowledge that God is in it. And that will go a long way to keeping us from going off the rails. But secondly, not only do we see God's presence in our text, but God's power. God's power. And now we come to the language in our text that has puzzled some commentators. Because the inspired apostle talks here about the church of the living God being the pillar and ground of the truth. What does it mean, the pillar and ground of the truth? Some people think it suggests that the church is the foundation of the truth. The pillar, obviously, is a supporting element in architecture. But the ground, that's like the foundation. So they say, well, it must mean that the church is the foundation and the support of the truth. 
Roman Catholicism says that this text means that the truth rests on the church. That if you take the church away, you don't have any truth. So they define the church in Roman Catholic terms. And they have a field day with it. But the Bible is plain that the truth exists independently of any association with any person or any organization. The church is not the foundation of the truth. The church is the structure that the living God has established in this world to act in defense of the truth. And that defense requires militancy and resolve. Such a defense exists only in the power of the living God. It's the power to resist that which opposes the truth. It's the power to stand against every defection from orthodoxy. Whether that defection is a simple dilution of the truth about God or a denial of the infallibility of Scripture or the necessity of the blood atonement or the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Only by the power of the living God can you resist the opposition to the truth? But there is another aspect related to defending the truth that we come to now, the third aspect, God's proclamation. God's presence, God's power, God's proclamation. And here we deal again with the concept of the pillar, what the meaning of the pillar is. In the Old Testament period, it was the custom that the worshipers of the true God set up pillars as monuments to proclaim some facet of God's dealings with his people. And these pillars usually were natural pieces of stone that uh, a follower of God would find in a certain area. We find an incident of this kind in the book of Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, and here the context is Jacob's great dream that he had that caused him to say, the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. And at the last verse of chapter 28, we read that he said, This stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. Bethel. That's Hebrew. It means the house of God. This stone shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Here was the beginning of the great change in Jacob's life. And that pillar that he set up was to proclaim the goodness of God in dealing with Jacob not as he deserved, but in grace and in mercy. To say that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth is to proclaim then the gospel that God is gracious to sinners. Not because they deserve it, 
but out of his pure, unmitigated favor. So the church's message, the pillar of the truth, is the word of God and the doctrine of Christ. For the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth means there's no liberty to deviate from that truth or to distort that truth or to conceal that truth in any way. When it comes to what we possess in material goods, we may be liberal. And indeed, there are exhortations to be liberal in that way. But when we come to the truth of the living God, there's no such liberty. We can't say, well, we're going to be more tolerant. We're not going to be so hard-hearted. Because the church has only that message and must proclaim it unswervingly. When you pray for that young man who is about to be ordained and installed as the minister of our Orlando congregation, you can pray that the Lord will give him the grace and the courage to proclaim the truth of the gospel unswervingly. The church's proclamation is that it will not sell out the truth for any reason. That it will do all that is possible to transmit that truth safely and without corruption to succeeding generations. How many times we look upon children born now in the 21st century. We were recently with our grandchildren and I think of it all the time. Here are 21st century people all born in this century. And the youngest of them may live long enough to see the next century. This is their century. Our, uh, our obligation is to transmit the truth to them without any distortion. The church that casts the truth away loses its reason to exist. The institution that dilutes its declaration Concerning the truth, as Harvard did eventually, will adhere to the doom of its existence. You wouldn't think of sending anyone to Harvard now to be trained for the gospel ministry. Well, they have a school of divinity, but you wouldn't want to send anyone there to learn how to preach the gospel. The church then is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's God's instrument for propagating and conserving the truth of the gospel in a world bent on destroying that truth. And you see then how important the church is in the world. It has to be steadfast against all forms of heresy. It has to be ardent in its dissemination of the gospel. It has to be unyielding in its love for the glorious person who is the very embodiment of the truth. And that person is the one whom Paul has in view in verse 16. I said we would come to this verse eventually, and here we are. God's personal revelation. Look at the declarative statements of this text. God was manifest in the flesh. 
God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world. God was received up into glory. It's well to emphasize. A lesson I heard the late Dr. Alan Cairns tell us in seminary years ago now that the translation of verse 16 is the only valid translation of the text. God was manifest in the flesh. Some modern translations omit the word God and put in its place simply He. There's no foundation in the text for that translation. So if you want to know about a translation of the Bible, one of the places you turn to immediately is 1 Timothy 3.16. What has it done with that translation? This text speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ and demands fidelity to the truth concerning Him. Jesus declared that He is the embodiment of the truth. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's very singular. I am the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So when people say, well, we need a more tolerant approach to evangelism so people don't feel so bad. Jesus said, no man cometh to the Father but by me. So the truth that is Christ is the truth that Christ proclaimed. It's the truth for the church, and the church has to defend it, especially from those who subtly compromise it. Whenever a prominent person dies, and it seems like lately a number of prominent people have died, those who are left behind tend to talk about that person's prominence, about that person's activities in the world, what did this person do in whatever field of endeavor he or she was in? But they never asked the real question. It's a question about Pope Benedict or anyone else. What did that person believe about Christ? That is the ultimate question. Because at the point of death, that's all that matters. What you've done in the world doesn't amount to a hill of beans there. It is what you did with Christ. Here is the truth about Christ in our text. He was God manifested in the flesh. God appeared in human form in Jesus Christ. The Jesus of Nazareth of whom we were speaking this morning he was God manifested in the flesh. You see, if you, if you don't believe in the coming of Christ in the flesh, God, the God-man, Emmanuel, if you don't believe in the virgin birth and the miracle that the virgin birth is, you're not a Christian. That's all there is to it. 
God appeared in human form so that when Jesus walked through this world, all the people that encountered him, and they didn't know it because unlike a lot of the religious art uh, illustrations, Jesus didn't have any kind of halo or glow around him. He was... He looked like every other person. So there were people who didn't realize who he was. But as a man, he knew the endorsement of the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven. He was justified in the Spirit. At his baptism, the voice came from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we read here also that angels ministered to him. That was in the aftermath of the temptation. When for 40 days and 40 nights he did not eat. We read here that his apostles proclaimed the truth concerning him across the world. He was preached unto the Gentiles. We we have a stake in that statement right there. Because, unless I miss the mark here, we are all Gentiles in this gathering tonight. He was preached unto the Gentiles. Not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And people by the thousands, by the thousands... And by this time, by the billions, have believed on him. And he is now at the right hand of God. He ascended up into heaven where he was before. So when we defend the truth, we have to defend the truth concerning him. We began by looking at the lessons of Harvard College. Those lessons are part of the historical record, and it's not a happy one. The changes happen gradually, but inexorably. You start introducing tolerance to changes, pretty soon you find out you can't stop the train. It's going down grade. Those who make or favor the changes believe They can limit the extent of the changes. But changes that feature a shift from the truth in its classic sense, that is its biblical sense, to that which the people desire, that is its popular sense, unleash their own momentum. So beware of anything that seeks to substitute for the old theology, the old doctrine of the Bible, that which is popular with this generation. In the case of Harvard College, the process of tolerance for and promotion of change undermined upright behavior and the theology that underlies it. So to embrace apostasy, or at least not to fight against it, and that often is the problem, is to destroy morality. Now, can you see where we have come in our country today? 
is the destruction of morality. And what's the cause of it? Not fighting against apostasy. Ultimately, that destruction leaves Christian faith in the dust. So when we speak about truth for Christ and the church, it is a message. Let the commitment of this church, of our whole denomination, be always to the truth that is Christ. And the truth that God has revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Let that be our objective. We're not going to tolerate anything that diverts our attention from that objective. This is truth for Christ and for the church. The church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to praise thee again for thy faithful mercies, to bless us as we have considered thy word this evening. We pray that thou would be pleased to bless the word of God to our hearts and to grant to us, to each one, the resolve that we will not waver in our commitment to defend the truth. Lord, we thank Thee that when it comes to the truth, we have nowhere else to look but the Word of God and the person of our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, seal the blessing of Thy Word to our hearts tonight and give us the awareness that we need in our time of all those departures, those compromises with the truth. O Lord, give us the resolve that whatever others do, we will remain steadfast in the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Hear our cry, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.